NZ Aerosports, Icarus Canopies, now Gyro. That's right, we've rebranded, and Gyro is our next generation. It honours our founder, as that's the name we knew him by, but Gyro also marks the start of a new chapter. And not to be biased, but it's going to be fucking epic. Long story short, we're more us than ever. So if you're new to the sport, or even a Sky God Ninja Turtle, welcome. I think our valiant leader Lucy, Gyro's daughter, Says it best. And we still got that fuck your attitude. <laughs> Rebrand! Woo! Rebrand woo indeed, Lucy. Anyway, head over to gyro.com for more info and get amongst your legends. I was 19, broke, unemployed, and sold my girlfriend's canopy for drug money. So, I thought I'd better sell her a new one. What a sentence and what a story. This describes the humble yet outrageous beginnings of NZ Aerosports, the home of Icarus Canopies, in the words of our founder himself. From getting a paratrooper toy from his mom, watching parachutes at the DZ as a six-year-old, jumping off the wharf with a parachute made from bedsheets, doing his first jump at 16, sewing his first canopy on a borrowed machine at 19, and starting to sell parachutes out of a garage in 1986, Paul Gyro Martin had an undying love for the sky. Our company started with one man with the wildest of spirits in a true blue sky dream, a renegade. In the time that Gyro created and ran the Icarus Canopies brand until he passed away in 2017, he pushed everything he had to its limits. We miss him and we always will. Gyro is the next generation of NZ Aerosports. It honors our founder, of course, because it was the name we all knew him by, but Gyro the rebrand also marks the start of a new chapter, our next jump. Gyro is the space between sound and silence, art and science, chaos and calm. Gyro is a state of epic tranquility that transcends understanding. That moment, in the door, in free fall, mid-swoop, where nothing but the present exists. A perfect balance of euphoria and thrill. Gyro captures our passion for flying and our commitment to designing break-the-fucking-rules canopies that deliver pilots pure, wild flight. Coming straight from the cockpit, it's another episode of Lunatic Fringe with the fucking pilot. Ready, set, go! Back in the can for another edition of the Lunatic Fringe podcast and a face I haven't seen in a while with a big smile. Who the fuck are you and what do you do? Thank you, Dean. So I'm, I'm Iman Abel. I, uh, I'm a skydiver. I'm a professional in financial technology and I just do a bunch of things here and there. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I mean, you have like a, a, a real life, like a job and everything. That's not real life. That's my alter ego. Is that it? <laughs> real life is what happens after that. <laughs> right. It's so funny to me because, of course, um, being on the drop zone all the time, I get to know skydivers. And I'm always shocked when I find out that they have another life 
that anything goes on. And then, of course, I would see you uh, every once in a while, not in skydiving garb, but dressed very professionally. And it always throws me off. I'm, wait, what the fuck is going on? Is there a funeral? What's up? <laughs> kind of. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, uh, it's, it, it's, it's two separate worlds, but one is fueled by the other somehow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, I understand. So speaking of, as as always, I jump all the way back to the beginning. So how did you get started? Not necessarily just in skydiving, but in anything extreme. Well, my, my story with extreme stuff goes kind of way back to uh, like when, when I was just a kid, like my parents got me into sports, like we've always been a sports type of family, but nothing extreme. I started with tennis and ballet, which... Uh, compared to what I do today is very, very boring. Right. But uh, yeah, like I don't wear tutus anymore. But uh, um, like I substituted that with wingsuits and I prefer that a lot more. But fast forward to my teenage years, I got mixed up with a bunch of people who got me into motorbike racing, which my parents do not know about until today. And they will not they will not listen to the podcast <laughs> at uh, at 15 uh, like i had a little like bike that i used to go to to school with it was like a, a tiny scooter thingy like you see everywhere in in europe or in north africa but i got mixed up with that group and i got to try a honda cbr 600 at 15 and that kind of blew my mind. And I wasn't, uh, I, lived, I lived in Morocco back then. So I got into unofficial uh, motorbike racing where we would pick times when the streets are empty and just like go for it. <laughs> so that was like, that was the most extreme part of my life, if I'm being honest. Um, well, and I, this was in Morocco, yes? Yeah, that was in Morocco. And that's, I was in high school. That's. <laughs> Pretty fucking hardcore, right? <laughs> yeah, like I, I toned down a lot, like ever since I drive a Volvo today. So <laughs> it happens to the best of us. <laughs> but I, I've done that for for about three years until I graduated high school. And then uh, I somehow convinced my dad that when I get into the right university and everything, he would get me a bike and upgrade me from the little scooter that I had. Um, but I was debating whether I would go to uh, Europe to for my studies or to the American University in Egypt, which ended up being my choice. Uh, and I chose the, the university in Egypt because it had much higher ratings as a business school compared to others. And my dad is Egyptian. He hasn't lived in Egypt for over 30 years. And he was going to get me a bike there and family had an intervention because it's not safe. <laughs> whatsoever i don't know if you've been but driving in egypt is uh, absolute insanity i have so, been and it's one of the scariest experiences i've ever fucking had it's it's more extreme than skydiving like it's, yes, it's yes. <laughs> absolutely insane so the dream of owning my own bike and i have i wasn't with the the same guys i was with in morocco so the the, the motorbike track kind of faded away and um the universe likes to have fun with me. So like when I went to Egypt, my cousin uh, was engaged to uh, the local champion of car racing in Egypt, <laughs> who, <laughs> who decided to take me under his wing and teach me how to race and drift and do all the weird stuff. 
and I used to live at the dorms back then in university and we had a very tight schedule where he would pick me up three times a week at 1 a.m when the highways are empty and we just go for it and he taught me like everything I needed to know about car racing he had an entire uh, garage of different cars and everything and I was 18, 19, so I can imagine how big my head got. And the like the universe kind of put me back in check because I was drafted to be the only female car racer in Egypt in nationals. And I thought like I was the shit. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like no one can stand in my way. And um I was humbled. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And I'm grateful for that because if I wasn't humbled, I would have died in an accident later on. So um, I uh, I got into a pretty bad car accident, not in the racing cars, but one day I just wanted to go to Alexandria with my friends to uh, to the port, spend the day at the beach and whatnot. And we rented uh, we rented cars to go there because my parents didn't want me to drive in Egypt. So hey. another point why they will not be listening to this. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I was so cocky, like there was no scenario in which I could drive uh, an automatic car. And in Egypt, there were no manual cars, like stick did not really exist. And I could only find one really old, broken, shitty Mitsubishi Lancer that was manual. And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to take that. And I drove it the same way I was driving the racing Porsche that was assigned to me. But mm. the car could not could not keep up and I ended up like flipping three times on the highway and it was not it was not okay like I came out of it without a scratch I just have like a tiny scar on my hands to remind me to be a good girl <laughs> <laughs> so were you by yourself when you flipped the car no I was with a friend we were three cars but both of us came out without anything but the car was totaled so it was it was a humbling message from the universe for me to get my shit together and like just chill out so message was received. I mean, and... <laughs> especially in Egypt. I mean, I have very little experience in a car in Egypt, and it was in the back seat going from the hotel near the airport, racing to the pyramids to get in, you know, the quick tour stuff and then come back. Yeah. And I was amazed because it's insanity. The the lines aren't even on the roads anymore because yeah. no one pays attention to them. And yeah. the side doesn't matter. You just go where but i i remember being very struck by how it worked like somehow it fucking worked and then here you are here you are going to alexandria trying to drift your way in a in a lancer i mean i was a kid and i like in hindsight i am really grateful that that happened because i it humbled me and like uh like if i had gone to nationals and even got it on the podium, even if it was like third place or whatever, God knows what I would have done. So thank you, universe. Yeah. So that, that was that, that was the most extreme part of my life. How did you explain the crash to your parents? I didn't. They don't know? So I told them four years later. So I I was brought up to be a very responsible person who like takes up uh like responsibility and sees through my decisions all the way to the end and stuff. And I always had my parents' regards to me as the highest thing in life. Like I always wanted to make them proud and knowing how, like it was the only time I lied to them about, well, that and, and the bikes, but the racing part. <laughs> um, that I was not sharing my plans with them. 
Sure. So uh, it back then it kind of felt like it was kind of a punishment, like for not having been honest the way I was used to be with them. And there was like we were taken to court by the by the the car rental company and there was a substantial amount of money to be paid so i didn't want to tell them i tell until i fixed it so i got like a a loan from my cousin uh that i paid off as a student i i like invented a side gig that maybe i should get back into because it was really good money um i was writing papers for people who were lazy to write to write their own papers in university and yeah that was really good money and i being like I like to kind of hack my way through things by being extremely efficient because I'm naturally lazy um and my bosses like that about me because I I find the shortcuts to get the job done but right. super fast so I, I speak a lot of languages and I would I I got access to a few databases of papers in Spanish and Italian and uh and French and I would take them and then Google translate them and fix their language and then have them submitted on Turnitin so it's not plagiarism. And I would be like popping papers. <laughs> you, you're literally giving me the script to a Fast and Furious movie. <laughs> like this is she's a badass from Egypt and this is what she did. And, and she had to work her way through making crazy papers to afford her habit of driving cars crazy. Yeah. <laughs> I come down a lot. Like now I'm a home bud with a cat and I like to chill and stare at the ceiling, but it was an interesting time. Um, but yeah, so after I fixed it and I paid off everything, then I told my parents, like, remember like a few years ago when communication with me was a little bit iffy and we were fighting a lot and stuff. This is why, because I preferred to fight with you than telling you the truth and hurting you. So here how'd, they how'd they take it? Well, my mom started crying. My dad just looked at me. He's like, do not give me any details. I don't want to think about this. I'm like, okay. <laughs> well, so you said your dad's originally from Egypt. Where's your mom from? Uh, she's Moroccan. Okay. I mean, so it's definitely, family stuff is definitely different than it is in the States. I mean, in the States, that yeah. kind of thing happens. And I mean, kids do some stupid shit and they're proud of it in the States. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, they just like my dad raised me to be the first boy he didn't have. So uh, like he raised me to be overly responsible and highest achiever possible and blah, blah, blah. So like doing stuff that would disappoint him was always something that haunted my life until sure. very recently. Like I finally made peace with that. But I yeah, I had to preserve that image for my dad, you know, sure. I was proud of it in my circle, just not to my. Family. Yeah, of course. Of course. <laughs> well, so you managed to go to school full time, do really yeah. stupid shit in cars, um, yeah. fix the damage that you did and uh, maintain the relationship with family. But you were studying specifically for what you're doing now. Like, what was your major? So I was studying business. Uh, I started off double major uh, in actuarial science, uh, so I really enjoyed math, uh, and I double majored in business finance, uh, but I always saw myself as someone who was working in business. Not, I didn't know what exactly, but I didn't see myself as a hardcore office person, so I ended up dropping actuarial science after uh, the first year, because while statistics were fun, I would not... I didn't want a career just doing equations all day. So I'm like, okay, cool. Cool story, bro, but not for me. Um, so I, I studied business and 
I, I ended up in the place where I am in pure coincidence because I'm in payments and financial technology. And it's a very niche uh, industry that most people don't know about. And I was at an American university. So like it's pretty much the same story all over business schools that are American globally, where the biggest push is towards three things, management, consulting, investment banking, and uh, FMCGs. So like the PNG is Unilevers of the world. And I never wanted to, like in every decision I took in my life, even the choice of going to Egypt versus going to France, like every single person in my country, I, I like to do things differently and like find my own path. So I gave myself after graduation, like two years of a trial period of figuring out what kind of role I, I would like to do and I enjoy and I'm good at and what kind of industry I want because business opens up everything. And I ended up finding that a year into uh, a year after graduation. So I, I worked at Thomson, Thomson Reuters and Yahoo. Thomson Reuters, I didn't like the role. I didn't like the industry. Yahoo, I enjoyed the role, which was business development, account management, but I did not like the industry. I needed something a little bit more numbers uh, driven. Um, and then I got a job at Visa uh, as a, like a consultant into slash projects manager. I didn't know, I thought Visa and MasterCard were logos on cards. Like the interview was an absolute joke because at first when they told me Visa, I thought it was like a travel office for an embassy to help people getting travel visas. It's like, it was an absolute joke, but I was blessed with a guy that I, whenever I meet him today, I'm like, you're the reason I'm suffering in payments. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, yeah, you have the right soft skills we're looking for. You have the right mindset. The industry is teachable. So come on board. And I've been in, in payments and financial technology ever since. So that was 2012. Well, you're literally the first person I've ever heard say statistics are fun. First off, which just uh, I'm I have to take off my shoes to count to 20 with any <laughs> amount of confidence. So I just don't. I can't wrap my head around the whole math thing anyway, but it's such a, it's such a dramatically different image that you would have of someone that does what you do for fun, especially considering what you just told me you used to do for fun. I mean, that's, yeah. that's, it's literally like the superhero ripping off the normal <laughs> outfit to go and <laughs> so how did yeah. Scott, how did Scott even come into the mix? So skydiving was a really funny story because I, like after I graduated, I lived in Egypt for a few more years. I was traveling a lot with work. And uh, at one point uh, I started kite surfing. Uh, kite surfing is really big in Egypt. And uh, I used to come to Dubai on business trips quite a bit. And every time I come here, I would stay in Grosvenor house facing the drop zone. Mm. So I would look at the parachutes. I had no idea what skydiving was because it didn't exist in Egypt and Morocco. I thought it was like bungee jumping or like zip lining, like a tick box bucket list kind of thing. And I never sure. even had the curiosity to look it up. Like it, it didn't exist in my repertoire. And I would look at it, I'm like, oh, it looks like kites. They're just a little bit higher. So oh, I'll do it next time. And my, my trips were always last minute. And that lasted three years. Every time I come, the DZ, like everything was booked two months in advance and I never got a chance to jump. And fast forward three years later, I moved to Dubai. Uh, that was January, 2016. And uh, I'm like, okay, I'll just settle in. I'll uh, furnish my house. I'll do what I need to do. And then I'll go for a jump. 
I was stupid injured myself kite surfing, so I had to postpone that a little bit. And um, in October, I was like fully back into my health and everything was okay. And I was just at home chilling and I was living in Princess Tower and I could see the drop zone. And I'm like, this looks like a beautiful day. You know what? I'll just go. I'll walk in there. I'll see if I can jump. And I, I seriously, in my head, it was a bucket list thing. I had no clue. <laughs> and at the time, I was kind of recovering from a really bad breakup. And like my emotions were kind of were, were inexistent. Like I thought like I, I couldn't feel anything anymore. It was a really weird time. <laughs> but skydiving kind of brought back life into my heart. Like it was it was a very interesting feeling because I went in and there was a wait list and they're like, yeah, you might be able to jump today. So I'm like, okay, I'll stick around. Just let me know. And it was 16th of October, 2016. Uh, I went on a jump and I was feeling nothing all the way up to the door opening. And I'm like, what the fuck am I doing? <laughs> like I could hear like the sound of people exiting, just like, like that kind of messed with my head. And then I went to the door and I'm like, I'm not supposed to see something like that. <laughs> that visual does, does not add up. Like my subconscious is not happy, but Fast forward the few seconds, just getting down the hill and stabilizing. The the instructor tapped my hands to let go. And that was it. Mm. Like it felt, you know, like in the movies when someone is like dying and they put that electric shock thing on their chest. I don't know what's the name. Like it felt like that jump just pumped life back into me. And that was the most beautiful thing I ever felt. I so can imagine. Landed, I'm like, guys, like, I don't know how you do it. I cannot afford to pay for a tandem every time I want to feel this because I want to jump every day and I'm not a millionaire. So how do you guys do it? And then they explained to me. And on that same day, I booked for the AFF that I couldn't do until Christmas Eve because I had way too many business trips. So I booked it. I paid for it uh, up front. And uh, 23rd of December, I started ground school. And... That was it. Like, it was pure insanity. Year one, I did 600 jumps. Jesus. I, I was at the drop zone every single day. Like, even yeah. when it was raining, I'm like, I can get a jump in. I don't care. Like, one day, Pablo Rua, like, he saw me. There was rain all the way up to the wheel of my Jeep. He's like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Like, go yeah. home. <laughs> well, when, when I first knew who you were on the drop zone, I assumed that you worked there because you were just <laughs> always there you know i mean yeah. and especially because i'd been flying there for a number of years by the time you started doing your iff there yeah but they have so much new staff coming through that place i never know who works there or not i mean i hate to say this but there's still a number of people i worked with for 10 years whose names i don't know <laughs> i'm glad you know mine so <laughs> yes you know it <laughs> it uh, uh i mean it's funny too but uh, it's kind of a classic story heartbreak and looking for something new and <laughs> and skydiving is what does it i mean <laughs> yeah well it did it <laughs> so uh, how did the family take that they know you jump right they have to know you jump yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and they're oh. super supportive like they're extremely supportive of it and i had an injury even in, in 2019 that was very traumatic for me and it was my dad who pushed me to go back to the sport even though i was terrified mm. but they've been super supportive i took my dad on a tandem with tooks when i had 150 jumps <laughs> that's awesome 
So no, they're super supportive. My mom loves flying in the tunnel. Like I took her in for the intro thing of two minutes. She stayed for 15 minutes. I'm like, woman, get out. Like <laughs> that's awesome though. Yeah. So that's I'm fantastic. Really my brothers jumped as well. So it's uh it, they're very proud of it and, and they support me in it a lot. Now, as you started out, I mean, you say you did 600 jumps in that first year, but you also work a pretty demanding full-time job and travel a lot. So how do you do that? I mean, so I got lucky the first year. Uh, Well, lucky from a skydiving perspective, because I I used to work at a company that was winding down operations and uh, we, we had the litigation going on for a few months. So like there was no work to be done. So for... Um, like I started end of December, I left them in March and those three months I was not doing anything. Oh, wow. So uh, it was kind of a paid holiday of some sort. And uh, that's when I like, I jumped the most. And after that, I, I worked just for six, seven months in another company until I landed in MasterCard and like got back into stability. So it was kind of a turbulent time uh work-wise and the workload was not as bad but I was there uh like when I got that other job like I was there every single weekend cracking like 10 jumps like something that's not possible today like to get 10 jumps today but I would do that like both days of the weekend and I would average between 60 and 80 jumps a month and I would take time off or fake being sick or whatever I needed to do (laughs) but I knew that the job was just transitionary it wasn't like that two, 2017, my first year skydiving was not um, a good time career-wise for me, but it gave me flexibility to be able to jump a lot, which sure. is a blessing in disguise. Did you know when you started how lucky you were that it was Dubai you were training in? Because, uh, I mean, there's a lot of people that have no idea. A lot of people that have only ever jumped at, at, in Dubai that don't know what a real drop zone is like and what it, how yeah. difficult it can be. I mean, if you tell most new jumpers 600 jumps in a year, they're like, fuck you. I did 60 and I was lucky. You well, know, like Skydive Dubai of today, like it's difficult to get these numbers now. Anyway, sure. like, like at that time, I knew I was very lucky and I was. I was surrounded by friends who were telling me the stories of the golden era of skydive Dubai. Like everything ended when I joined, like the last flight. <laughs> it's your job, fault. The last, I, like I swear to God, like I was doing my AFF in Winterfest and they had the balloon, they had the glider, they had everything and the, the Sherpa. And then I get my A license. They're like, yeah, all oh, this is gone. Like, Yeah, crazy. the Sherpa broke, <laughs> the balloon stopped flying. <laughs> The glider never came back. Uh, I never did a helicopter jump. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. But, but uh, I mean, but I, I knew how special of a place it was, and like my friends made sure that like I was surrounded by really good people, and uh, I I knew how special it was, especially after traveling, because uh, I jumped in quite a few places, and I realized that no, like we're lucky. Like, especially like the desert for someone who's starting out to be able to see the landing area from the sky and not be confused by so many green lands and houses. And like the first time I jumped in the land, I was so confused. Because <laughs> after Dubai, I jumped in Diani. Diani was easy. It's just a tea on the beach and you just land on the beach and life is okay. 
yeah. then the first time jumping in a normal drop zone was in in skydive the lens for fly for light camp and i opened like i was extremely excited because i was jumping with claudio and like i've been a fan of him like for so long and i'm like jumping with an idol and then i open and i have no idea where i am <laughs> I'm spending so much time and I had like a 99 canopy at the time. So it's coming down quite a bit. I'm like, where am I? But <laughs> <laughs> so like after that landing, I'm like, God bless Skydive Dubai. Like we have it so easy, like at the palm and at the desert. And with the ground control, like everything feels just so safe and so organized and a no brainer. You just need to think about your jump and that's it. Nothing sure. else. Sure. Now, awesome. you, you crank out those crazy jump numbers. You're hanging out at a drop zone that is um, a draw for the best in the industry. I mean, you yeah. start out your career becoming friends with people that were heroes of mine growing up, you know, I mean, yeah. uh, in the sport. And and it's funny because you just don't know any better because it's just Olav or it's just Omar. It's yeah, it's you know, I mean, you've got these rock stars that are teaching you yeah. shit just because they're there, what aimed you towards wanting to wingsuit? Because that's mostly how I know you. So the first few months, uh, that that like the, the first three months that I told you I wasn't really working and I was at the DZ every single day, the three people I spent the most time with were Pablo Hernandez, Fred, and Vince. So I got so much download from them into everything. And we like we connected speaking French and like a friendship kind of built instantly and they took me under their wing and they they just told me all of these stories and it was fascinating for me so uh, like one one advice that they gave me early on was to like take things in buckets like or progression and really give each discipline like the attention that it needs and focus so that's how like my progression kind of took on and they told me one thing that even though the rule is 200 jumps for a wingsuit, if you want to be a badass like us one day, become a badass in free fly first. Be able to track with everyone. Be able to be in every single jump you can be in. And then think about wingsuit flying, mm. which is what I did. Like I invested a lot in uh, in tracking. Like I was doing angles like I did a bunch of camps abroad and in Dubai. Uh, I invested a lot in tunnel. Like I have over 90 hours in the tunnel. Uh, and I'm insane. <laughs> um, call it, call it driven. Yeah, let's call it like that. It's, I, I, it has a better connotation. I like it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, call it driven. Well, I mean, I suppose when you start out and the people that are mentoring you literally right out the gate are the fucking soul flyers. Yeah. That that I, had an incredible impact on my life. Like it's uh, like I I owe everything to them. Like in in the vision and drive and and to Pablo because like ninety percent of my canopy progression and we've done it very unconventionally. It wasn't the standard path. Uh, and I I owe everything to him as well. Like these three people really influenced quite a lot. And um, so I I spent. 950-ish jumps focusing on those skills mm. and building uh, experience. I did not touch swooping. I did not touch wingsuit. I did not touch anything. It was just angles and free fly. Angles, free fly all the way. And then around 950, I felt comfortable enough that 
I just had that intuition that it was time to mm. wingsuit. And like even my first rig that I bought, like it had the wingsuit corners with that in mind for the future that eventually I'll downsize and I'll keep that as a wingsuit rig. So um, I started my first flight course with, uh, with Darren and I got super lucky that the sky trash guys they adopted me from early on like they saw like a very fast progression because of the free fly skills like with darren and i joined them on a couple jumps and they offered me a slot on the team and that was transformative for me in terms of accelerating my learning because we were doing the same thing day in day out every time we we're jumping together so that was really really interesting i stayed with them i think for two for a little less than two years. Um, but my goal in wingsuit flying was always to be able to free fly the wingsuit mm. and do the shit that Fred and Vince told me about years ago. So um, that didn't really align with the goals of the team. So I had to break away from it. And we're still very good friends, but I, I needed to break away on my own and take my wingsuit progression to the next level. And uh, I haven't been... Like last year, I didn't jump that much, but I had really concentrated uh, coaching days, especially with Danny Roman, who took me on my first head down curve and I was crying after I landed. <laughs> I went to him, I'm like, I need to fix my freaking transitions. I'm not transitioning in place. And like, that's all I wanted. And I'm like, yeah, your next trip, like my dream is to be able to carve and like do head down and this and that. And like on the fifth jump, he took me head down and like I was falling like after we landed like, <laughs> <laughs> like you made my dream come true without even knowing it <laughs> sure it's funny because there are people listening that know the names that you're putting out there fred and vince and danny roman and they hate you right now <laughs> I, I feel extremely lucky to be honest and being in dubai like even if like the majority of the legends that are at least still with us uh are like they come to visit all the time so yeah, like yeah. today like, danny is here sebastian alvarez uh, uh vince vincent cotbush is here coaching like it's now it's a battle to be able to get a day with them but we get to see them and hang out and learn from them and see them do cool shit and incredible landings and incredible projects so i'm i'm very blessed to be in this city and to be part of that community like oh yeah I, I mean, change I, that any second. I feel the exact same way. I, I, I'll i never forget the first time that I had Fred and Vince sitting up front and tap me on the shoulder and ask me if I wanted to chase them after they exited the otter. And I'm, holy shit. Yeah. Yeah, I do. Thank you very much. And it, it almost became a, for a while there when they were doing a bunch of different stuff, but they'd come and they'd wingsuit just to go have fun or go back to the roots. They weren't working on anything wingsuit and they were just playing. And every time without fail, it'd be like, hey, are you coming? <laughs> yeah, I'm fucking coming. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's no way in hell I'm not coming. And, and you, you're right. You get spoiled because all of a sudden... You've got literally the world's best, the people doing the cutting edge stuff that yeah. are, and you you discover quite quickly, they're just skydivers that want to play. They're just skydivers yeah. kind of playing on the next level, but they still, yeah. it's still, it's they're, yeah, they're part of the and community. And they're so humble. And like when, when they don't have a jump plan, they come to you, they're like, oh, do you want to go for a fun jump? Like the first time that happened to me, I was like in so much disbelief. Yeah. Uh, like this was, this happened with Fred. This happened with our common friend, 
Omar, where like at his birthday, I think was the last time I saw you before you left. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like being able to fun jump with Omar at Hijailan is just like, it's it's surreal. Yeah. And like they're so humble and such incredible humans and having access to them and just hanging out is extremely it's, special. Omar, it annoys me. He's so nice. I'm I keep I'm looking for chinks in the armor. I like want to say something that makes him mad just so I can see if it can happen. <laughs> That's so if you ever do, let me know. Because yeah, I, he's just I've well, never seen him mad. Well, because I've been to a couple of his birthdays there. Were you there when I asked him how he did it? And yeah. I wasn't. I, yeah, that I was, was the last one when when we were playing like around the couch. Yeah, I was because I was terribly inappropriate because I didn't realize his daughter was like yeah, ten feet away when I'm cussing as much as I am now. Going, how the <laughs> fuck do you do it, man? And he's like, my daughter. You and I could that one. I could at least see him looking at me like you asshole. Would you watch your mouth? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, that was the, his last birthday when we were together. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that was so much fun. But yeah, you're right. I mean, you you find yourselves in these situations where um, 99% of me is like, this is just a friend of mine and I'm going over for his birthday. But there's still that 1% that's going, this is fucking Omar. He's your lawn. <laughs> yeah, it's surreal. It's incredible. We're really blessed. It is, right? Well, so, but I mean, you've kind of pushed it now, too. You've done a lot of shit now. You did a bunch of stuff with Sky Trash, and then you move forward um, to do, like, what would be considered some pretty epic stuff in wingsuits. I mean, what's the goal now? Because you're still, you still have a normal life, but... Yeah, I, I still have a normal life. Like, in skydiving, like, I, a little bit over a year ago, I uh, I got into uh, swooping, but at a very slow pace. Uh, so, and that's like the custom program that I mentioned earlier with Pablo Hernandez. And I also got quite a lot of coaching from Nick Batch, which was an absolute honor and helped a lot. Uh, I, I did a little bit with Cornelia as well. And I'm just taking the swooping stuff extremely slow. Cause I know like, I cannot just cork out and find stability, like with a wingsuit, like the right. damages to that would affect my other life quite a lot. So I take it extremely slow and like a lot of people have been criticizing that but I, I don't give a shit like I do what works for me and <laughs> like you guys you go and like swoop your life away like I'm taking it easy um but I progressed into uh into a super cool canopy I started doing 270s and I just today actually I was getting current on that because I didn't do any swoops since May and I was scared <laughs> <laughs> it's fucking freaky right yeah like the the sight picture like as you're engaging on the 270 and like my canopy is parallel to the ground like that messed with my head so um but at least i i'm, I'm getting my currency back on that and slowly slowly like my goal is just to enjoy myself like nice. i i i love wingsuit flying i love canopies like these are my two things i I do not care for like angles and free fly as much as before. Like if I go on and not do any of it going forward, I I, I don't care. Sure. But it's uh, like wingsuits and canopies are are my my kryptonite. So I just want to keep progressing and having fun and jumping with different people and jumping in different locations and sure. just having fun. Like that's my goal. Now, with all the experience that you've got flying wingsuits, what about base? No, that's an absolute no. That's good. I like that. I, I like, yeah. I like hearing like, that. For me, that's like, I even 
we have a weird tradition with my parents. Like when I was a kid that if I insisted on doing something they didn't approve of, like we would sign a contract that I'd be allowed to do it for a month. And then after that, I won't speak about it. But for base, I was the one initiating the contract with them, uh, saying that if at any point, uh, like the adrenaline gets to my head and like I want to push into there, that they like they have a green light to stop me with any means possible because <laughs> I like th the first fatality I encountered in the sport like a few months into it was base related. It was Graham and then it was Micah and then it's all of those incredible legends that are such incredible people that I've seen like fall one after the other. Yeah. And it's just something that I wouldn't bear to do to my family. Like sure. I would never be in their skill level. And it's just a level of risk that I'm not willing to take today. Like it's a beautiful sport and I know the feeling is something else, but there's a, there's a limit of how much risk I'm willing to take at this point in my life. Sure. Like I've taken it well, up when I was a kid. <laughs> yeah, that was, I was lucky in that uh, the line in the sand was drawn for me um, when I was new in skydiving in general, because I became a dad and promised myself as soon yeah. as I was a dad, I'm like, no, no, no. She deserves to have a dad as she grows up. So base yeah. jumping is just a bridge too far. And now yeah. I, I enjoy it. But just like you, especially after Dubai, you spend so much time around the cutting edge that, I mean, you and I have lost a lot of people in Dubai yeah. um, specifically from that. You know, I mean, it it makes it tough, especially when you're at a place where all the legends come all the time. You're going yeah. to get to know and get close to people that aren't going to be with us. By the 100%. way, uh, one lighthearted thing. Did you see um, that Micah is going to the moon soon? Yeah, I saw I saw Shaney's post. It's so special. For anybody That's that doesn't right. know, um, Micah Couch, um, after he passed away, um, he was gifted both a shot into orbit. And then uh, I found out a couple of years later that Micah was going to be put on a probe going to the moon, which actually yeah. launches pretty soon. Yeah, <laughs> it's fucking insane. Micah, I, I took a little bit of him to Everest. Um, He, of course, has had celebrations kind of all around the world. He's gone into orbit. Now he's going to the fucking moon. <laughs> well, he keeps being an, an even bigger legend years after he's gone. Like, he's just something else. Like, Oh, yeah. Well, my favorite part about Shaney's uh, post was that because his ashes are going to be going on the moon, maybe aliens will find him and clone him. Of course, of course they will. Of course Absolutely. they will. Absolutely, that's a no-brainer. Well, if you're going to clone anybody, clone Micah, for oh sure. God, exactly, yeah. <laughs> I still remember my very first encounter with him, because I, I would always see him with Fred and Vince, and I assumed he was also French. I didn't know who he was. I had no clue who anyone was. Like, it was just people at the drop zone. And I walk up to him, he was packing, and I start talking to him in French. And he looks at me, he's like, I'm not French. I just hang out with them. So they take me to their mountains. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Fair enough. Mine was the first encounter with him. Like... <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. Well, I was lucky in that I got to know him and all the Maktoum guys because I was obviously flying them quite a bunch. But my favorite memory with him was uh, a time in the tunnel. And it was when we still had access to uh, Highness's tunnel and okay. Sheikha Latifa was having uh, a night there flying and it was Micah and her and a few other people. And we were playing uh, follow the leader, just copy him, do what he does. So low down minimum air and he would jump in, do something and fly out the other side. 
And he jumps in standing up, barely goes in and then shoots out the other door, still standing up and then points at me. And I have no <laughs> fucking clue what I'm going to do. But I jump I in anything for that video. <laughs> oh, well, that's the crazy oh, thing is I jump in standing up and do what I think I'm supposed to do and shoot right out the other door so hard that I'm standing up against the wall outside the tunnel and Micah and Latifa and everybody else are looking at me like there's no fucking way you can do that. Wow. <laughs> I did not expect that. Like I expected like a meatball. But... <laughs> no, no, I was a meatball for the rest of it. But for that, I actually wow. it was I, I was just as shocked as everybody else. But Micah was <laughs> laughing his ass off. He was trying to teach me that time how to to fly on my head and as you know he was just amazing with people yeah. so everybody was putting duct tape on the top of their helmets when they would fly in the tunnel so it wouldn't fuck their helmet up but because he was teaching me to fly on my head off the net when he was having me turn the duct tape was getting stuck so it was it was fucking with my being able to do it he pulls me out of the tunnel and just smiles and goes fuck the helmet Okay, fuck the helmet, took the tape off, and next thing you knew, I was flying on my head in the tunnel. Because he's just like, fuck that, what are you doing, you idiot? Fuck the helmet. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's so Micah. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah, absolutely. Well, and again, we were lucky enough to have so much fun with people like that, and especially yeah. in a place like that. So nice. you did mention one thing I wanted to get back to. You said you had an injury that you had a tough time getting over. What happened? So I, I was flying with Rob. Uh, we were just coaching like we were at that time and uh someone asked if they were uh if it was okay to join as a camera flyer to train on their camera skills and that person i will not mention the name uh um like i i perceived that person as a very skilled person so i'm like yeah of course come in like i was always careful who i jump with um so um we did a couple of jumps it was fine and every time like rob would uh, brief the plan and be like okay to the person you need to fly in orbit because now we will be doing a, a weird exit that will probably go to shit and then we will uh, like we were just trying a bunch of stuff and and then we were going into uh, flares tracking so I was on my back and he was on his belly and uh, that person was flying in orbit but at one point uh, there was a mistake done that was target fixation and instead of flying that line, that person ended up falling vertically on my head. Uh, oh. And I was very lucky that it wasn't a very large person because that would have broken my neck and probably I would have passed out. Mm. But in the moment, like it just felt like, you know, in movies when there's an accident and you feel like it's uh, just like a sponge impact, everything was kind of fuzzy. I didn't know what happened. I was looking at Robin, he was like completely distraught. And I'm like, what's wrong with him? Like, okay, let me go and try and do my layout now. And like, of course my body didn't respond. Like I stopped mid layout. And then the dinner beeped. And when I deployed, my head was exploding. Oh. I'm like, okay, like I don't understand what really happened, but now I just need to focus on landing. I, I had a crossfire 99 at the time. So I'm like, I cannot just like, given to my pain so i just need to focus I, I kept on breathing and praying until i was able to land it safely and then after that like shit hit the fan uh so i had a neck injury from like the pull because it was at the back of my head and my neck turned like my head turned quite a bit and um it took two 
for three days for a very severe concussion to develop. Wow. Uh, which took me out for, for about six months. So I was kind of a vegetable for four months in complete darkness, not able to work, not able to do anything whatsoever. Um, and it was very painful because my brain was extremely swollen. Um, but then I started to slowly recover, thank God. And um, thanks to our common friend, Mike Washburn, I was able to get back into skydiving because he's a tough guy. And I needed a military person to push me through <laughs> my PTSD and my panic attacks and everything. Like they took me in the team after the injury. And literally like for the first two, three weeks, I was like crying on the ground in the plane while flying under canopy. Like I was shaking. And because I did not see it coming when the impact happened, it wasn't in my line of vision. So there was like PTSD of something out to get me sure. without me knowing. So I've done a bunch of therapy to get over that, but I owe everything to Mike to help me go through it and be able to skydive and find joy again mm. in the sport. So it's, that's what uh, it's that's crazy what how you can have to deal with that next level fear and panic attacks and anxiety to go do something that you love. And it's very difficult to explain to someone what it's like, especially when you're not scared of whether or not your skills are going to serve you well. It's yeah. the randomness of it, right? It's that's where it just fucks with your head. Cause you're like, okay. it's not my skill. I'm good. I know how to handle emergencies. I can do all these things, but I just got hit by fucking lightning. You know, <laughs> It's uh, um, and I've I've had some some similar experiences that you just didn't see it coming, and you had to learn to deal with the randomness of stuff, and that's the scary part. But yeah. speaking it's, of speaking of, of Mike, I've had Mike on the podcast as well, and and you just gotta love Mike because he's just yeah. he's just he's just the guy. He is. I, I he's, mean, he's and, just Mike. Like there's. He's Mike. <laughs> and he does everything 150%. I remember yeah. him mentioning something about wanting to get a tattoo. And then the next thing I saw him, he, he had a full back piece and two sleeves. <laughs> I was shocked. I'm like, that's a hell of a commitment. Like, I know you're leading the team and I know you love it. but dude. <laughs> Oh, man, it was amazing because he, he yeah, I got a, I, I got some ink. And I'm like, oh, show me because he always wore jerseys. And he yeah. lifts up his jersey. And I consider myself a pretty heavily tattooed person. And then he took it off. And I'm like, holy fuck, <laughs> dude, holy shit. And for yeah. anybody, for anybody listening, go back and find the Michael Washburn episode. He is yeah. the the um, the uh, founder of Sky Trash Wingsuit Team, and he's just a great guy. He's a lot of fun to he's listen incredible. to. He's got the Southern drawl to him, and just a very easy way about him. But he's very military in some things, yeah. and it's which is awesome. It's awesome. Well, yeah, the only way to keep the team together. And yes. honestly, the only way for me to get back into skydiving, like my dad was pushing me daily to go back and like not be a worse and like go and like go past my fear and stuff. But I, it's because of Mike's toughness on me. And he was so strict about it. Like I felt I was at military camp, but <laughs> if it wasn't for, for that, like any, any other person or coach or whatever, if they saw me like in the state I was in, they'll be like, just chill, like go home. Have, like just chill. Yeah. 
don't jump now but well it's cool that between mike and your dad both of them saw and knew this is something that you had an incredible passion for and knew that you would regret it forever if you didn't get back into it that you had those two people pushing you in the same direction super lucky that's like, awesome. super lucky and in hindsight um like given how my life unfolded after that accident i i'm happy it happened because it, it made me who i am today and like the universe like works in really mysterious ways like in that year like i thought i was dying i thought my life was over like it was a really really dark time but in hindsight i'm grateful Sure. Like well, uh, isn't that funny, right? I mean, I, I've got a couple of experiences that are like that that were incredibly traumatic that I look back on as blessings instead of curses because I you learn how much stronger you are than you think yeah. you are having to. And then every day, and I'm sure you still deal with it every day, something comes up, some anxiety, some fear, and you're like, oh, this is in the big scheme of things. This is fucking nothing because I lived through that. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. It's it's incredible. It really is. So uh, as we get towards the end of things, any events coming up, any places that you're going to be going jumping? And if people want to come jump with you, how do they find you? Social media, all that shit. Uh, well, uh, I'm, I'm easily reachable on Instagram. Like it's literally the handle like with my name. It's at Iman Adel. And um, I'm, I love jumping with different people and I'd love to uh, like meet new people and just to jump and have fun and share the passion um in terms of events like there's nothing in plan like set in stone i want to go to sweden to the wingsuit tunnel to work uh, a little bit on more precision uh not sure when but next summer there is a very big wingsuit boogie that is in the works in europe mm. um that i'm looking into but honestly at this stage there's nothing set in stone but there will definitely be one or two trips at least skydive related next year. Nice, nice. I'm I'm gonna have to keep up with you on that because uh, uh, now that I live in Europe, um, I'm having the opportunity to travel a little bit more around this area, and I, I'm actually going to uh, to Kenya the 10th of December, where I get to do another remote uh, podcast with You're Omar. Gonna love it. You're gonna I, love it. I was I there in April. It's mind blowing. Like you wake up, you get out of your room, and there's a giraffe. Yeah. <laughs> which i can't wait what <laughs> yeah i absolutely can't wait and of course i'm going to be there with uh with alhijalan again and and uh karim is going to be there and so all these amazing people where i get to again have uh an on location podcast with them so amazing. i'll keep up with you on the wingsuit stuff because i'd love to show up and just start talking to people because it's so much fun no no let's let's do that we'll stay in touch and i'll let you know Awesome. Well, I cannot thank you enough for taking your time over the evening to sit and talk to me. I know you're super busy with everything, but again, it's been wonderful catching up. I appreciate you for having me. It's It's been an honor and it's always great talking to you. Really, you, thank you. You take care. You too. Well, there you have it. Another episode of the Lunatic Fringe Podcast brought to you as always by, well, wait, not as always, actually. Brought to you now by Gyro. Formerly known as Enziero Sports, you'll head to gyro.com for their next level line of canopies. By Pussfoot, the extreme sports collective. Head over to pussfoot.com to check it out. By Summit Parachute Systems, check out summitparachutesystems.com to talk to Jarrett Martin and the gang about kick-ass pilot rigs, rigging courses, and more. By Flyaway Indoor Skydiving. 
Go to flyawaytn.com and check out all the cutting edge stuff to come. Buy Pure Spectrum CBD. Head to purespectrumcbd.com to check out their wide range of CBD products. And as for us, head to the lunaticfringepodcast.com to listen to any of the hundreds of episodes currently available. Hit the link for our YouTube channel, pick up your copy of the Lunatic Fringe book or The Accidental Stripper, and get a sneak peek at upcoming guests. Once again, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.